0: Welcome to the Wilfred Podcast. Here you'll expand your knowledge and understanding on a wide range of business, entrepreneurial, and self development skills in just 30 minutes or less. I'm your host, Grant Kitchingman. Introducing the Wilfred Podcast. there, Brucie. For those of you joining me for the first time, Wilfred stands for one thing, the pursuit of knowledge. Well, I guess make that too, because it also stands for what I've learned from reading, an educational discourse. This podcast, as outlined in the intro, will provide you with an excerpted account of various business, finance, and self-development books in just 30 minutes or less. This is because every one to two weeks, I read, highlight, and deconstruct a new book from one of these genres, write a script, record, and release a new episode of the podcast, all within that time period. I very purposefully said one to two weeks, as recently life has gotten in the way, and I've recently missed a couple of my weekly uploads. I know this sounds like I'm making excuses, and that would be fair to suggest. I've been keeping up to date with my reading, but I've recently identified other endeavors which required me to redirect my focus and unfortunately the podcast was a focal point, which took the hit at the time. But make no mistake about it, despite my relative low views, I have no intention of stopping, and will continue to make what I believe to be high-quality content for whoever is willing to listen. Thanks so much for being one of those people. Victoria Devine is the founder and host of She's on the Money, an award-winning retired financial advisor and writer. She has a background in behavioral psychology, an extremely successful podcast, and is this week's author in focus. Devine continues to help thousands of people change their relationship with money through these various mediums, making hard-to-understand concepts fun, fresh, and relatable. While this book is most definitely targeted towards young women, I believe the notions shared by Victoria are applicable to all. As such, I have selected and shared what I believe to be the most important ideas, concepts, and excerpts. I'm not being too presumptuous, asserting that this book is targeted towards female millennials, am I? Here's a quote to confirm my idea. Young women feel disempowered around money conversations because finance isn't a topic we've been taught to focus on. We don't learn about it in school, and most of the time, we don't learn about it from our families. Well, I would argue that this is the case for all Australians, not just women. As I've discussed before, finance is not a part of the educational curriculum or reforms. Further, my father certainly never pulled me away from my sister to have a secret chat about the finer points of money management. In fact, the lessons I have learned are a result of various mistakes I've made over the course of two decades, as I'm sure many of you can attest. Victoria claims to be quite direct, and unapologetically so. In Victoria's own words, you'll find that I'm pretty upfront when putting facts on the table. This is only positive, as when it comes to finances, there should be no ambiguity lack of clarity, beating around the bush, none of it. This book will allow the reader to better understand a range of topics, including saving, superannuation, investing, home loans, taxes, insurance, and estate planning. However, for the ease of structuring and staying true to form, I've reorganized the information within the book's pages into three sections. These include part one, saving, part two, investing, And part three, future-proof. In her prologue, Devine also writes, Sometimes what's best for us isn't necessarily what we want to hear. I find this notion refreshing and couldn't agree more. Discussing finances, and more importantly, being honest about your current situation, is key. Like Victoria says, It's not important what happened over the past 10 years. It's the next 10 that count. Part 1. Saving. The basis of financial freedom comes down to two things. Spending less than you're earning, and regularly and continuously saving and investing. We will discuss investing in Part 2 of this analysis, so let's discuss the former in this. I know that I have discussed saving strategies in various episodes, but not only does Victoria share some killer ideas in this book, Saving is obviously also the most important method to wealth building. Devine confirms this, writing, Mastering your cash flow is going to be the key to your future financial well-being and success. As I stated in the intro, the author makes a fair point. Quote, most of us did not learn enough about financial literacy at school. So, as we venture into the adult world, we need to skill up and get informed on banking and how to make it work best for us. Well, here is the first lesson. Spending money is easier than making it. This is for two main reasons, by my estimation. One, the chemical response to spending, which we have already explored in a previous episode. And two, we cannot and will not truly understand how much we're spending when we transact with plastic cards. If you're like me and the vast majority of consumers, you pay for most things with a debit card or credit card. Neither is unusual, really but it does create a disconnect between truly comprehending how much we're spending. For example, if you were to decide to spend $3,500 on a new gaming PC, then use either your credit card or even a buy now pay later service to purchase it, you may not think anything of it. This is, in theory, because it has been made more affordable as the payment has been split over four or more salary periods. You even get that sweet, sweet gratification of having the product now, unlike the old lay-by days. But let's do a quick imagination exercise. If you were to instead go to the ATM and withdraw that money in cash, let's say $50 notes, that would mean that you would pull four, no, only kidding, 70 of those bad boys out. 70. What would you do then? I'll tell you what I'll do, hold that fat sack of cash in my hand and immediately question my decision maybe even pull the plug on the transaction prior to purchase. This, again, highlights a cognitive dissonance those plastic transactions now cause. We say that we would understand how much it is worth spending on the new PC, but do we really? Let's look at this another way. Let's say that you earn $50 an hour. How long would it take you to save the money required to purchase this new gaming powerhouse? Come on, Slowpoke, we've already done the math. 70 hours of blood, sweat and tears put it away in an instant, on a non-essential item no less. As Victoria states, spending money is simply becoming far too painless. This reinforces the point that we need to 1. take control of our spending, 2. create, understand and stick to our budget, and 3. then it's just a matter of executing. Before we really delve deep into the topic of spending and saving, here are some saving tips, tricks and hacks. Victoria says, 1. Make your money less accessible. If it means banking with two different banks, do it. If it means cutting up a debit card, do it. 2. Hustle and hustle hard. Call your mobile, internet, energy, insurance and banks to try and haggle for a better deal. If that fails, tell them about the amazing competition and say you'd like to part ways. They may just change their mind. 3. Reduce your living expenses. Don't live above your means. I never want to see someone spend more than 30-40% to 40% of their income on rent. 4. Look for government rebates and healthcare schemes. 5. Meal plan and ditch takeaway coffees. And 6. Put 24 hours between you and your purchase. Hey big brain, do you remember the first hack? Well, if you zoned out, no need to fret. It was about banking. And that's exactly what we're going to explore next. Devine recommends a banking structure which has six different accounts. These include 1. Cash Hub The account your salary is deposited into. Do not attach a debit card to this account, but have your direct debits removed from this account. 2. Personal Spending Food, Fuel and Fun Have a card attached to this account. Each week on the same day, transfer your total weekly personal spending amount. This is the only account which requires a debit card. 3. Emergency Fund Used for flat tyres, paying insurance excess or taking unpaid leave from work. Aim for 3 months bare basics expenses in this fund. 4. Short Term Savings Used for holidays, purchasing something big or your wedding in 12 months' time. 5. Medium to Long Term Savings Saving for a home, working towards financial freedom, or saving money towards the cost of having a family one day. Place the money in a high-interest savings account. And lastly, 6. Not an emergency, but still feels like an emergency account. Go to a friend's birthday dinner organised last minute, or you got invited to join in on an experience next weekend. Victoria also postulates a question to herself on your behalf. Aren't you going to give me a list of percentages that I'm supposed to use for each of these accounts in my cash flow system? The answer is no. While in theory this is a great idea, it is not practical to hold someone to a specific percentage because of how different everyone's income is. Well, I have to say, I strongly disagree on this one, Victoria. That's literally how percentages work. And it's the reason why the Barefoot Investor has been so successful. Scott's readers are able to apply his recommendations regardless of their incomes or living circumstances. Percentages work for all income earners, and once your money organisation is automated, you barely even notice the difference. Regardless, this system may be preferable for some people, so I would recommend reading both Scott and Victoria's plans to best identify which one will work for you. Or you can simply listen to both episodes. The Barefoot Investor was covered in episode 9 of season 1. Devine also states, the first she's on the money rule of banking is that you do not need to be loyal to your current bank. Well, Victoria, I believe that this is actually borrowed, let's say, from Scott Pape. So let's chill with that ownership claim. Devine also mentions that those banks which hold a banking license and are an authorized deposit taking institution or ADI are also guaranteed by the Australian government up to the total of $250,000 per bank account. This is important, as most people are hesitant to have their money invested with any other bank outside of the big four, as they perceive the big four to be more stable in adverse market conditions. While this is partly true, as stated, the Australian government has got you, fam. Remember this, saving is not easy, nor is it a quick process, nor is it fun. Well, I'm really not selling this, am I? But it's important to remember that although you must abstain from the easy chemical release of online shopping, the pleasure of delayed satisfaction is so much greater. As Devine states, wealth is a combination of years of sacrificing, saving, investing and setting up future you. Saving does not come without sacrifice and it's the sacrificial element that people seem to struggle with. Saving is essentially delaying gratification. Lastly, if you're in a relationship... Don't put off or be afraid of having the financial talk with your partner. If they get defensive, angry or crankily change the subject, trust me, that's a red flag. Keep in mind that, as Victoria states, talking about money with your partner is 100% necessary. Cited as the number one thing couples argue about, money can quite literally make or break a relationship. Part 2 investing. In order to be successful in the share market, you must be willing to ride the waves and not panic at the volatility of the market. The introductory quote for this section is a little misleading. Although it was concerned with the stock market, which will be discussed, this part will also address property and professional advice. But let's start with the share market, specifically a sexy quote to rope you in. If a couple invested regular monthly deposits of $1,000 over 40 years, with an initial deposit of $20,000 and an annual interest rate of 7.5%, they would then own their family home outright, and then have retired with an investment portfolio worth approximately $3.4 million. You're listening now? Good. Like many other sources, Devine states that one should invest in a diversified portfolio including Australian and international shares and conservative margin loan. Also stating that she herself allocates 20% of her monthly income to investment. This seems like quite an agreeable percentage to me, provided the individual has no outstanding consumer debt, such as buy now, pay later, credit card debt, outstanding personal loans, $200 owed to Aunt Ruth, etc. Victoria also states that the easiest way to get off track and disheartened is to set a goal that you can't achieve. Next, let's discuss cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. Victoria states that Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency that is inherently flawed because it relies on a perceived value and can be easily stolen. Unlike regular types of currency like dollars or yen, cryptocurrencies are decentralized, which means that they are unregulated by financial authority and exist independently from governments or central banks. I know that I've made the same point three times now, But banks which meet the aforementioned criteria guarantee bank accounts up to $250,000. Do you know how much of your crypto wallet is guaranteed? Zero. I know what your argument might be here. Grant, investments within the share market aren't guaranteed either. And fair enough. But the stock market itself is highly regulated. So balls in your court, boss. Additionally, as Devine states, if you look at the Australian share market from 1985 the average rate of return is 10%. This steady average increase is far more acceptable to my risk profile than the supreme highs and lows of Bitcoin. Determining your own risk acceptance is one of the many jobs of your financial advisor, the topic which we'll discuss next. Victoria writes, Typically, a financial advisor is a licensed professional who provides financial advice and management across an individual's or family's investments, insurances, taxes, and or estate planning. But when should you seek the assistance of a financial advisor? Well, it's not as simple as attaching a dollar amount on this, unfortunately. Rather, as Devine states, you should get a financial advisor when you're ready to invest in advice and have proven to yourself that you can save and stick to a budget. This could also be when you're ready to commit to investing a consistent amount monthly. A lot of financial advisors will offer a free, obligation-free initial consult. Which will give you a good indication as to whether you would like to work with them. If you get a bad feeling or decide you don't want to work with them, it's okay to walk away and seek another. It's also important to understand that financial advisors should be upfront and transparent about how much they will charge you for their services. Victoria writes From the moment you book your initial consult, the financial advisor should send you a copy of their FSG or Financial Services Guide and advisor profile. This will detail what they get paid how they get paid, and when. Some advisors take performance-based fees or commissions on the investment products that they write. That's not okay, in my opinion. Prior to your initial consult, I recommend having clear goals. It's also worth brainstorming the areas in which you would like their insight and assistance. I would also recommend accumulating your investment, savings, and mortgage information, so they are at hand to share with your advisor in the consult itself. This preparation will diminish the time wasted through searching for this information when it is requested by the advisor. As Devine states, be ready to tell the advisor whether you want help with budgeting and strategy, investments, insurance, super, or all of those things. It's also important to have clear goals prior to the meeting. These should be set in stone prior to even booking. But how many? Well, Victoria states that the magical number of goals I like to focus on at a time is 5. 1 long-term goal, 10 or more years, 2 medium-sized goals, 3 to 5 years, and 2 short-term goals, 1 to 18 months. Lastly for the investment section, property. Let's start off with a common misconception. Quote, myth. I need a credit card to establish a credit score so that I can get a home loan. This is a very American idea. In Australia, you just need to be making good financial decisions, paying your bills on time, and not getting into unnecessary debt. How many of you have heard of that one on the grapevine? I certainly did. If you have done your research and found the one, as Devine writes, as soon as you're thinking about buying a home, speak to a mortgage broker. Good brokers will have access to a range of different banks. As a rule, the ones who only give you a choice of one or two should be avoided. Brokers will also allow you to compare interest rates readily and easily between a range of different banks. This is of course beneficial, as a lower interest rate will save you an unfathomable amount of money over the course of the term of your loan. It's also important to understand that, given the current conditions of both the property market and the economy in general, it's becoming more difficult to enter and remain in the market. As Victoria confirms, it is becoming harder to enter the housing market due to the tighter lending practices that resulted from the 2017 to 2019 Banking Royal Commission. By being held to higher standards, banks aren't allowed to give you access to a debt you can't service. In order to ensure that their investment in your future is not doomed from the start, banks are going to question you or your broker on several factors. As Devine states, banks are going to look at your income, lifestyle expenses, rent repayments, whether you have HECS or HELP debt, any credit card debt, personal loans, and your number of dependents, and then ensure that you can still make your repayments. If you're self-employed, Lenders will want to see two years worth of earnings and conservative saving patterns. Part three, future proof. Having multiple funds is more common than you'd think, but it's not ideal. There is no future without super, is one of my favorite made up maxims. Yeah, I just came up with it then, but it's pretty catchy, no? Hopefully you already know what super is, but if not, fear not my friend. Victoria defines this in her book. Superannuation, commonly referred to as super, is a tax structure designed to ensure that individuals save money throughout the course of our working life to generate an income after we stop working. As I've said on a previous podcast, superannuation was created because we can't be trusted to save enough money for retirement, so the government enforces this for us. As such, your employer is legally obligated to contribute 9.5% of your salary to the super fund of your choosing. You may elect to increase this amount. Some employees may pay your super on top of your agreed salary, and some employees may pay more than the 9.5% minimum. But this is the legal minimum standard. This also means that those who are self-employed will be required to organise this themselves, which must not be overlooked to ensure your financial stability in the future if this pertains to you. It's also worth ensuring that you provide a new employer with your existing superannuation account details upon your induction. Otherwise, in most cases, the employer will open an account on your behalf with their default provider. For example, teachers who are employed in New South Wales under the Department of Education will have an account with AWARE Super opened on their behalf in the event that your staff member does not provide their own super details. As stated in the quote at the top of this section, the Vine states that having multiple funds is more common than you'd think, but it's not ideal. The various fees add up fast. On average, the total fees on a super fund over a lifetime are $14,000. If you have five funds, they could end up costing you around $70,000 in fees. Here is what Victoria says to consider when choosing a super fund. 1. What type of risk profiles do they offer? 2. Are there investments in line with your values? Three, what are their actual fees compared to other funds? Four, how are they currently performing? Five, how do their fees compare to their performance? And lastly, six, what type of insurance do they offer? But how much should one have in super the day they decide to retire? Well, despite that no one number can truly be the answer to that question, Devine provides some insight on the matter. Quote, The Association of Superannuation Funds of Australia, or ASFA, suggests that the balance of a combined couple's fund should be $640,000 at the time of retirement, and $540,000 for singles. Despite providing this information, Victoria disagrees with this, writing, If you have $640,000 invested at a 5% return, that's only $32,000 a year. Devine declares further that if you'd like to have one hundred thousand dollars coming in per year, which I agree is a much more palatable figure, your combined super would need to total two million dollars. Sorry, that was from Austin Powers. If you didn't catch it, it was pretty bad. Sorry. <coughs> Devine shares what I consider startling figures, writing as of 2020, the maximum age pension per fortnight is eight hundred and sixty dollars and sixty cents for singles and $1,279.40 for couples. If your income and assets are above certain limits, your pension payment may be lowered. Some people may not be eligible at all. It's not the income ceiling that concerns me here. It's the fact that couples are expected to live off as little as $1,279.40 per fortnight in their golden years. Let this be your motivating force to not require the pension. Let's make a commitment to our future selves to allow them to live more happily and free of stress. That promise my friends lives and dies with a healthy nest egg in superannuation. Next up is taxation. The information I would like to share here is quite limited but I found these points interesting only having reached the identified salary milestone myself recently. If you earn over $90,000 per annum yourself, these two tips pertain to you as well. First, Victoria says that you may have to pay the income-tested Medicare levy surcharge, or MLS, if you earn more than $90,000 per annum. Second, because of this, a lot of financial advisors or tax accountants recommend that you take out private health insurance once you've reached the $90,000 income bracket. As stated previously in another episode of the podcast, this will save you thousands of dollars come tax time, as this surcharge won't be automatically taken off the top of your tax refund. It's also worth noting that, according to the ATO, an appropriate level of private health insurance cover for an individual must have an excess of $750 or less. Couples or families must have an excess of $1,500 or less. Just a heads up as well, the amount charged for the services of a registered accountant is a tax-deductible cost, as this may be claimed the following financial year. According to Victoria, the charge for sound financial advice is a worthwhile investment. Bonus section Weddings and becoming the exception to the rule. According to a 2015 study in The Economist, those who have a wedding above their means are more likely to get divorced, citing money problems as one of the key reasons for splitting. Weddings are expensive, dude. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes about it. As a side note, if you're looking at bridesmaids' dresses, wedding cakes, decorations, flowers, don't say it's for a wedding. That will save you the 20% wedding markup. You're welcome. Next, a quote from Victoria. ASIC revealed that in Australia, people spend an average of $35,000 on their wedding. Brides of Be magazine says that the figure is $65,482, while the wedding company Wedded Wonderland says that it's $53,168. It's safe to say that, no matter how you look at it, weddings are expensive. If you were to average out all three of these claims, you would get $51,217, rounded up to the nearest dollar. But let's use the average as per Victoria's quote above and suggest that you were to spend $35,000 on your wedding. As Devine states, that's $35,000 you didn't invest in superannuation or shares, which means realistically, the true cost of your wedding is closer to $200,000 over the long term. Ouch, right? Well, know that weddings on a budget are possible, and a lot more common than you'd think. My wife and I successfully hosted our wedding for less than $15,000. Yes, some sacrifices will need to be, and were, made. But isn't sacrifice the foundation of every happy, healthy, and prosperous family? Next, being the exception to the rule. But if we are to be the exception to the rule, one must first know what the rule I'm referring to is, right? Well, as Victoria states, in her book Lean In, Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg talks about how men will apply for a job when they meet 60% of the qualifications, while women will only ever apply if they meet 100% of the qualifications. While I won't speak for all men, I can say that in my case, this is unequivocally true, as I've done this myself numerous times. For better or worse, sometimes we just need to put ourselves out there. In my opinion, it's not our place to determine whether we are best suited for the advertised position. That's for the panel to decide. For all you know, you're exactly what they're looking for. Likewise, when should we put ourselves out there for a raise? Well, Devine writes, Determining if you deserve a raise comes down to knowing your value and how your time and actions are contributing to the success of the business. If you know your worth, then you will know exactly how much you are worth. So why not design a concrete plan and execute it? Whether it's asking your boss for a raise or applying for a job you believe you're underqualified for, you may be shocked by the results. Well, that's it for this episode of Wilfrid. What I learned from reading She's on the Money by Victoria Devine, an educational discourse. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For those of you tuning in for the first time, I read and highlight a new finance or self-improvement book, write a script, record and release a new episode of Wilfred, all within one to two weeks. I focus on releasing a condensed yet detailed breakdown of the book, so you don't have to read it yourself. You can get a fair summary of the book for free in the time it takes you to get to work. If you enjoy it and would like to give back, all I ask is you rate the pod five stars and if you like, follow the podcast. This will ensure that you don't miss another episode. And full disclosure. Will help me a bunch in growing my platform. My podcast is now available on all major streaming platforms including Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. These are, well you get it, basically all of them. Wherever you choose to consume this content, thanks so much for the support. I hope this is extended to my next one. Until next time, stay driven. that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest and it's gone.